Welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, The Perks of Business. Council Oak Supply Company's Buzzy Rebrand has ties to Sioux City's past. It's written by Earl Horlick of the Sioux City Journal. The dateline is Sioux City. There was once a large burr oak tree, affectionately named Council Oak, inside of what is now known as Riverside Park. According to legend, the tree, which started as a sapling in the 1700s, was the site for many meetings between Native American tribespeople and early settlers. The tree, which was cut down decades ago, was also pivotal when Dr. John Cook began the original plat for where he envisioned Sioux City to be located. In latter years, Council Oak lent its name to the well-remembered chain of grocery stores headquartered in Sioux City during the first half of the 20th century. Brad Lepper knows the value of a name that has withstood the test of time. This is why he renamed his 101 West 3rd Street Coffee Roasting, Coffee Supply, and Coffee Parlor with, a, with the historically significant moniker of Council Oak Supply Company. That way, Lepper can differentiate the West 3rd Street location, which supplies coffees, equipment, and consultation to coffee houses throughout the Midwest, with Stone Brew, the retail coffee shop and cafe he helped establish more than seven years ago. Our 5822 Sunnybrook Drive location will still be called Stone Brew, Lepper explained. Customers will continue to enjoy their favorite breakfast foods in the a.m., a whole lot menu of subs, soups, and sandwiches for the rest of the day, as well as plenty of coffee drink options from morning to night. Which isn't to say that Council Oak Supply Company's comfy, club-like coffee parlor isn't a bustling place throughout the day. We wanted our West 3rd Street spot to be open and accessible to the public, Lepper said. It is a great place to purchase some freshly roasted coffee while grabbing a cup of something special as you wait. Chances are the coffee aroma will draw you into the space, but the building, with offers, which offers a unique view of downtown Sioux City, will keep you there for a while. I've always thought we have the greatest view of the city on the second floor of our building, Lepper said, opening up an overhead door window in one of the company's conference rooms. You can see City Hall, the Mid-American Energy Company building, and Hard Rock Hotel and Casino without having to strain your neck. That's because, because Council Oak Supply Company is situated along the curvy Prospect Hill, which was Sioux City's earliest neighborhood. Sioux City began its life as a river town and, back in the day, Prospect Hill allowed for quick access to the Mississippi River, Lepper said. Even though his ex expertise is in coffee, Lepper is also becoming a bit of a local history buff. For instance, many of Council Oak's signature coffees have Sioux City-centric names. The Guatemala and Peru medium roast coffee is called Prospect Hill while the Peru Dark Roast War Eagle is named after Chief War Eagle, a Dakota-born tribal chief in the Yankton Sioux tribe. These coffees will soon be joined by the Big Sioux and Little Sioux, the latter is decaffeinated, blends. Council Oak's product line is in many ways a throwback to Sioux City's rich coffee history. For many years, Sioux City was the home for major wholesale grocery dealers, Lepper said. Many of these companies imported roasted ground and packaged their own coffee brands, distributing them to stores across the Midwest. 
Indeed, he has collected a trove of colorful tin containers and promotional crocks featuring logos and brand names of long-forgotten coffees made by William Tackaberry, C. Schenkberg, and Rob Ross. We want Council Oak Supply Company to pay homage to Sioux City's colorful history while being on a cutting edge of today's coffee economy, Lepper said. To that end, he said Council Oaks has a customer base far as far east as in Washington, D.C. There's nothing more satisfying than a cup of coffee, Lepper said. That is something that will never go out of date. Nonprofit Seeks to Build Treatment Facility is the title of our next article. Council to Consider Terminating Kinseth Contract. It's written by Dolly Butts of the Sioux City Journal, and the dateline is Sioux City. A nonprofit group wants to construct a residential treatment facility near the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center. Agape Community Service plans to build the facility on 38.82 acres of land at 3500 28th Street. The land is currently owned by the city of Sioux City, but the nonprofit has provided a letter of intent to purchase the property according to city documents. During its Monday meeting, the city council will be asked to rezone the property from business park to public and institutional. Public and institutional allows for facilities other than group homes in which residents live in an institutional environment and are under the care or control of staff. Inpatient drug and alcoholism hospitals and rehabilitation centers are allowed under public and institutional. In the spring of 2022, Agape Community Services scrapped plans to turn the old Sioux City YMCA into a faith-based restoration ministry for individuals struggling with addiction. The long, vacant red brick building at 722 Nebraska Street was subsequently demolished last year at the council's direction. Only 18 to 20 acres of the 28th Street site would be developable. The rest of the land would be used as green space, according to the documents. The property has rolling hills, occupied grasslands, deciduous trees, and a large number of invasive eastern red cedars. The city sent 10 notices about the zoning request to property owners in the area and also posted notices in several locations within nearby mobile home communities. No responses were received, according to the documents. The City Council is also expected to vote Monday to terminate the City's agreement with Kenseth Hospitality Incorporated for the management and operation of the Sioux City Convention Center. The agreement with the North Liberty, Iowa-based company has been in place since June 5, 2017, according to City documents. City Manager Bob Padmore told the Journal Friday that the Council requested the termination based on some issues that have transpired at the City-owned Convention Center. Ultimately, it was determined that there are things that can be optimized and improved upon at the convention center, he said. We are looking at other options for operating the convention center. I'm not at liberty at this point to say what it is, but we're working towards that. Under the terms of the current agreement, the city may terminate it by giving Kinseth a minimum of 90 days notice and a $70,000 termination fee. The document stated that the city sent a letter to Kinseth dated December 21, 2023, announcing its intent to terminate the agreement. We fully intend to have a transition without any disruption of the facility, Padmore said. Nearly two years ago, the city council voted to reduce Kinseth's subsidy to manage the convention center by $25,000. 
During a February 23, 2022 budget wrap-up session, Mayor Bob Scott took issue with what he described as a lack of events occurring at the venue. He also noted that Kinseth's cost should have gone down dramatically amid the pandemic, which led to many groups canceling or postponing events. Under Kinseth's current contract, the city incentivizes the company for cutting down on the subsidy each year on the subsidy taxpayer's foot each year to keep the venue running. Kinseth had an approved budget of 340000 for fiscal year 2023 and $372,626 for fiscal year 2024. Since it was built in 1988, the convention center has hosted thousands of events. The $22 million five-story courtyard by Marriott Hotel, which connects to the convention center, opened on May 14th of 2020 during the first year of the pandemic. The new addition and renovations to Gallery C were unveiled at the convention center in late December 2019. The more than $3 million in renovations included more flexible space for events, enhanced ballroom amenities, and convenient restrooms. Our final story from the front page of the journal is entitled Snowstorm Expected Monday in Sioux City Metro. Winter storm warning, snow emergency in effect. It's written by Mason Doctor of the Sioux City Journal. A winter storm warning will be in effect for the Sioux City Metro all day Monday and the early part of Tuesday and the city of Sioux City has declared a snow emergency. Snow is expected to begin falling at around midnight Sunday night into Monday morning, said Ivan Gums a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls. An inch or two of snow is expected to fall during the early morning hours Monday. There may be a lull for a time Monday morning, followed by a blast of snow in the afternoon, possibly as much as four or five inches. We're expecting most of the bulk of Sioux City, western Iowa snowfall to really occur tomorrow afternoon, Gums said Sunday evening. Total snow accumulation could be as high as 8 inches in places, according to the National Weather Service, and the chance of snowfall Monday is pegged at 100%. Sioux City Mayor Bob Scott declared a snow emergency beginning at 7 a.m. Monday. A snow emergency declaration prohibits parking or leaving a vehicle unattended on an emergency snow route street noted by a blue and white sign with a snowflake. Vehicles should be parked on the even-numbered side of the street beginning at 7 a.m. Monday. Beginning at 7 a.m. Tuesday, vehicles should be moved to the odd-numbered side of the street. The winter storm warnings is expected to expire 6 a.m. Tuesday. Now we come to an article entitled, West Middle Student Posts Social Media Threat. Sioux City Police Deem Threat Not Credible. Sioux City Police have determined that a threatening social media post by a 14-year-old West Middle School student was not credible. The department became aware of the post Saturday, according to a press release issued Sunday afternoon. The nature of the threat and the identity of the student who posted it have not been disclosed. West Middle also put out an email Sunday addressing the social media threat. The threat was reported to law enforcement by a student who saw it on social media. West Middle said in its email, The individual who made the threat has been identified and law enforcement is investigating. The district takes every social media threat seriously. Threats against our schools are not tolerated and individuals involved in making threats face serious consequences. 
The Sioux City Community School District has faced occasional social media threats in recent years, as have other school districts across the country. In September, West Middle, along with West High, North High, and North Middle, were all placed in a lockout due to a social media threat. Additional information related to this case can be provided to the Sioux City Police Department by calling area code 712-279-6440. In national news, leaders announce deal, House Speaker Laud's agreement that could help avoid shutdown. This is written by Kevin Frecking of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. Congressional leaders have reached an agreement on overall spending levels for the current fiscal year that could help avoid a partial government shutdown later this month. The agreement largely hews to spend spending caps for defense and domestic programs that Congress set as part of a bill to suspend the debt limit until 2025 but it does provide some concessions to House Republicans who viewed the spending restrictions in that agreement as insufficient. In a letter to colleagues, House Speaker Mike Johnson said Sunday the agreement would secure $16 billion in additional spending cuts from the previous agreement brokered by then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden, and is about $30 billion less than what the Senate was considering. This represents the most favorable budget agreement Republicans have achieved in over a decade, Johnson writes. The most conservative House Republicans opposed the earlier debt ceiling agreement and even brought House proceedings to a halt for a few days to show their displeasure. Many were surely wanting additional concessions, but Democrats have insisted on abiding uh, by debt ceiling spending caps, leaving Johnson in a difficult spot. Biden said the agreement moves us one step closer to preventing a needless government shutdown and protecting important national priorities. It reflects the funding levels that I negotiated with both parties and I signed into law last spring, Biden said in a statement. It rejects deep cuts to programs hardworking families count on and provides a path to passing full-year funding bills that deliver for the American people and are free of any extreme policies. The agreement speeds up the roughly $20 billion in cuts already agreed to for the Internal Revenue Service and rescinds about $6 billion in COVID relief money that had been approved but not yet spent, according to Johnson's letter. Lawmakers needed an agreement on overall spending levels so that appropriators could write the bills that set line-by-line funding for agencies. Money is set to lapse January 19th for some agencies and February 2nd for others. The agreement is separate from the negotiations that are taking place to secure more money for Israel and Ukraine, while also curbing restrictions on asylum claims at the U.S. border. In a joint statement, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries also voiced their support for the agreement. It will also allow us to keep the investments for hardworking American families secured by the legislative achievements of President Biden and congressional Democrats, Schumer and Jeffries said. Finally, we have made clear to Speaker Mike Johnson that Democrats will not support including poison pill policy changes in any of the 12 appropriations bills put before the Congress. Winter storms slam both coasts. Warnings, watches, cover northeast, many in California, without power. It's written by Steve LeBlanc of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Boston. 
A major winter storm bringing heavy snow and freezing rain to some communities spread across New England on Sunday, sending residents scurrying for their shovels and snowblowers to clear sidewalks and driveways. Winter storm warnings and watches were in effect throughout the northeast, and icy roads made for hazardous travel as far north as North Carol as far south, excuse me, as North Carolina. The northeast snow came as a Sierra Nevada storm packing heavy snow shut down a stretch of interstate Saturday and briefly knocked out power to tens of thousands in Reno, Nevada. More than 11,000 electric customers in California were without power Sunday afternoon. Some communities in Massachusetts had recorded more than a foot of snow by Sunday afternoon, according to the National Weather Service. Nearly 13,000 electric customers in the state were without power Sunday afternoon. Hundreds of flights at Logan International Airport were delayed or canceled Sunday, according to tracking website FlightAware. Snow totals were lower for coastal communities, with Boston reporting just a few inches. Snow was expected to continue throughout the day. The storm reached into Maine, with snow totals of up to 12 inches in some places, with locally higher amounts over southern New Hampshire and southwestern Maine. Wind gusts up to 35 miles per hour could add to blowing and drifting snow. Moderate to heavy snow was expected to continue in Vermont with total accumulations of 6 to 12 inches. Major winter storm conditions were expected into Sunday evening, including snow in parts of New England and rain and freezing rain around the central Appalachian Mountains. In the west, a winter storm warning was in effect throughout Saturday night in the Sierra Nevada from south of Yosemite National Park to north of Reno, where the Weather Service said as much as 20 inches of snow could fall in the mountains around Lake Tahoe, with winds gusting up to 100 miles per hour. The California Highway Patrol said numerous spin-outs and collisions forced an hours-long closure of Interstate 80 from west of Truckee, California, to the state line of Reno. The Weather Service said that system would continue to unleash heavy mountain snow and coastal rain overnight before moving into central and southern California, then off to the southwest and the southern Rockies. The East Coast system was expected to track along the northeast coast throughout the weekend. While warnings were being canceled and highway reduced speed limits and other restrictions were lifted Sunday, motorists were being cautioned about the hazards of spotty freezing rain and black ice in southeast Pennsylvania and northern New Jersey. In Massachusetts and parts of Rhode Island, the National Weather Service declared a winter storm warning from 4 p.m. Saturday through 1 a.m. Monday, with snow accumulations of between 6 and 12 inches and winds gusting to 35 miles per hour. Forecasters also warned of another northeast storm Tuesday into Wednesday. And as Blinken visits region, Israel issues warning. This comes from the Associated Press and the dateline is Jerusalem. Hezbollah struck an air traffic control base in northern Israel, the Israeli military said Sunday, and warned of another war with the Iran-backed militant group. The increase in fighting across the border with Lebanon as Israel battles Hamas militants in Gaza gave new urgency to U.S. diplomatic efforts as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken prepared to visit Israel on his latest Mideast tour. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering, Blinken told reporters after talks in Qatar, a key mediator. 
The escalation of cross-border fighting between Israel and Hezbollah has complicated a U.S. push to prevent a regional conflict. The Israeli military said Hezbollah fire hit the insensitive air traffic control base on Mount Marin on Saturday, but air defenses were not affected because backup systems were in place. It said that no soldiers were hurt and all damage will be repaired. Hezbollah described its rocket barrage and its initial response to the killing of a top Hamas leader in Beirut last week. The Israeli military chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Herzi Halevi, said military pressure on Hezbollah, a Hamas ally, was rising and it would either be effective or we will get to another war. I suggest that Hezbollah learn what Hamas has already learned in recent months. No terrorist is immune, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told his cabinet. Now for some short articles under the Digest heading. First from Portland, Oregon. Airlines again ground Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets. Alaska Airlines and United Airlines grounded all of their Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliners again on Sunday while they waited to be told how to inspect the planes to prevent another in-flight blowout like the one that damaged an Alaska jet. Alaska Airlines had returned 18 of its 65 737 MAX 9 aircraft to service Saturday, less than 24 hours after part of the fuselage on another plane blew out three miles above Oregon. But the airline said Sunday it received a notice from the Federal Aviation Administration that more work might be needed on those 18 planes. Alaska said that it had canceled 170 flights, more than one-fifth of its schedule, by mid-afternoon on the West Coast because of the groundings. These aircraft have now also been pulled from service until details about possible additional maintenance work are confirmed with the FAA, the airline said in a statement. From Kiev, Ukraine, Russian shelling attacks target city of Kherson. The southern Ukrainian city of Kherson was subjected Sunday to numerous shelling attacks from Russian-occupied parts of the Kherson region across the Dnieper River, located, local officials said. The head of the Kherson city administration, Roman Morocco, said two people died in the shelling attacks and several others were wounded. In Ukraine's northeast Kharkiv region, a man was killed and two other civilians wounded in Russian shelling of the Kupiansk district Sunday, according to the Kharkiv Regional Prosecutor's Office. From North Korea, North Korea again fired artillery shells near its tense sea boundary with the south on Sunday, as the influential sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, Kim Yo-yong, mocked the South's ability to detect its weapon launches. And China announced sanctions Sunday on five American defense-related companies in response to U.S. arms sales to Taiwan and U.S. sanctions on Chinese companies and individuals. The companies are BAE Systems, Land and Armament, Alliant Tech Systems Operations, Aerovironment, Viasat, and Datalink Solutions. From Bangladesh, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has won over an overwhelming majority in Bangladesh's parliamentary election after a campaign fraught with violence and a boycott from the main opposition party. 
From Japan, rescue teams worked through snow to deliver supplies to isolated hamlets Monday, six days after a powerful earthquake hit western Japan, killing over 160 people. And a 28-year-old man and four young children died in a house fire on Saturday near the community of Matthias, West Virginia. One woman who was able to escape the fire was transported to the hospital. The children who died ranged in age from one to five. And from Myanmar, airstrikes by Myanmar's military on a village under the control of the pro-democracy resistance in the country's northwest have killed at least 17 civilians, including nine children, local residents, and a human rights group said Sunday. The morning aerial attacks over Kanan village in Sagang region's compact town just south of the Indian border also wounded about 20 people, they said. In other world news, masterpieces in thread. Royal Tapestry Factory, once home to Goya, is still weaving treasures. Comes from the Associated Press, written by Irene Yagu. Spain's Royal Tapestry Factory has been decorating the walls and floors of palaces and institutions for more than 300 years. Located on a quiet, leafy street in central Madrid, its artisans work with painstaking focus on tapestries, carpets, and heraldic banners, combining the long wisdom of the craft with new techniques. The factory was opened in 1721 by Spain's King Philip V. He brought in Catholic craftsmen from Flanders, which has been part of Spain's empire, to get it started. Threads and wool of all colors, bobbins, tools, and spinning wheels are everywhere. Some of the original wooden machines are still in use. The general director, Alejandro Klecker de Elizalde, is proud of the factory's sustainable nature. He's the, here, the only products we work with are silk, wool, jute, cotton, linen, he said, and these small leftovers that we create, the water from the dyes or the small pieces of wool, everything is recycled, everything has a double, a second use. The factory also restores pieces that have suffered the ravages of time, and it boasts one of the most important textile archives and libraries in Europe. Nowadays, 70% of customers are individuals from Latin America, Europe, and the Middle East. The factory recently received one of its biggest orders, 32 tapestries for the Palace of Dresden in Germany, worth more than 1 million euros, or more than $1.1 million, and providing work for up to five years, according to Klecker de Elizaldi. In 2018, the factory finished a private Lebanese commission for a tapestry replica of the monumental Tate Gallery pen and pencil work, by Sabra and Shatila Massacre, by Iraq artist Dai al-Azawi. It depicts the horrors of the 1982-1983 atrocities by Christian phalangist militia members in Palestinian refugee camps and were guarded by, that were guarded by Israeli troops. Creating a tapestry is a delicate process that takes several weeks or months of work for each square yard. A tapestry begins with cartoons or drawings on sheets of paper or canvas that are later traced onto vertical thread systems called warps, which are then woven over. One of the factory's most illustrious cartoonists was master painter Francisco Goya, who began working there in 1780. 
Some of the tapestries he designed now hang in the nearby Prado Museum in Madrid's Royal Collections Gallery. Our next article is entitled, Back to the Drawing Board. Research suggests doodling may spark creative juices at work. It's written by Marcel Schwantes from Inc. magazine. The current business environment can be intense, making the need for creativity crucial to achieve new solutions and original ideas. However, how do you activate people's creativity at work? This will sound far-fetched, but follow the science here. According to a study by Drexel University, art-making activities such as drawing, coloring, or doodling can activate the reward pathways in the brain, which is known to boost mental health and creativity. Researchers used functional near-infrared spectroscopy technology to measure blood flow related to rewards in areas of the brain while participants completed various art-making projects. The activities included coloring in a mandala, doodling with or around a circle marked on a paper, and having a free-drawing session, each for three minutes, with rest periods in between. During all three activities, there was an increase in blood flow in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which forms a part of the wiring for our brain's reward circuit. This shows that there might be inherent pleasure in doing art activities independent of the end results, said the study's lead author. The advantages of creating art go beyond just the pleasure of the activity itself. According to surveys before and after the art-making activities, participants who engaged in art-making felt more creative and were better able to solve problems. These findings have important implications and highlight the inherent benefits of art in promoting creativity, focus, productivity, and well-being. But there's one queer, clear winner in all this art-making. Between drawing, coloring, and doodling, the latter takes the cake. When you are facing a challenging project or problem at work and feel stuck, the solution may be to start doodling. Doodling is a simple and accessible activity that can help you tap into your creative side and generate new ideas. In doodling, your mind is free to wander and you can explore different thoughts and possibilities. The act of doodling also has a calming effect, which can help reduce stress and anxiety, making it an excellent tool for improving your overall well-being, which also will make you more productive. Doodling, the research suggests, can evoke positive emotions and should be considered a therapeutic tool for everyone, regardless of their skill level. After all, we're talking doodling here, a judgment-free activity. Because doodling frequently can have a positive impact on your mood, according to the research, the more you doodle, the stronger the mood-boosting effect can be. Studies have shown that doodling can help reduce stress and create a focused mindset. Besides its stress-reducing capabilities, doodling can enhance a person's problem-solving and communication skills in the workplace. Many successful people use doodling to boost their creativity and focus. This fact challenges the misconception that doodling is mere distraction. So the next time you feel overwhelmed or need a break, take a few minutes to grab a pen and paper and let your mind wander. You might be surprised at the results. You're listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS and intended totally for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. 
Since there are no opinions or obituaries in today's paper, we'll turn to sports. We'll start with an NFL roundup entitled Bucks, Packers win and end, Jags out. Cowboys, Bills win on the road to clinch number two conference seeds. This comes from the Associated Press. The NFL playoff picture is complete, with Tampa Bay and Green Bay claiming the final two NFC slots, while Jacksonville played its way out of what seemed like a sure thing a month ago. The Buccaneers won the NFC South with a 9-0 victory over the hapless Carolina Panthers in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Packers took the last playoff spot available with a 17-9 victory over the Chicago Bears, eliminating both the New Orleans Saints and Seattle Seahawks. The Jaguars will miss the playoffs entirely. Their fate was sealed with a 28-20 loss in Nashville to the Tennessee Titans, which handed the Houston Texans the AFC South title. Jacksonville's victory also guaranteed Buffalo and Pittsburgh would make the playoffs as wild cards. Buffalo went a step further and won the AFC East, beating Miami on Sunday night to claim the number two seed. Titans 28, Jaguars 20. Trevor Lawrence was stopped short of the goal line with 7 minutes and 13 seconds left, and he also turned the ball over on downs with a minute 47 left as host Tennessee eliminated Jacksonville. Lawrence, who returned after missing last week with a sprained shoulder, was intercepted twice. The Jaguars also turned the ball over on downs three times, twice in the final 7 minutes and 10 seconds. Buccaneers 9, Panthers 0, Chase McLaughlin kicked three field goals, the Tampa Bay defense pitched a shutout, and the Buccaneers won their third straight NFC South title. Packers 17, Bears 9, Jordan Love threw for 316 yards and connected with Dontavian Wicks on a pair of touchdowns to send host Green Bay to the playoffs with a victory over Chicago. Love went 27 of 32 as Green Bay never punted all day. Love threw a 10-yard touchdown pass to Wicks that put Green Bay ahead for good midway through the second quarter and found the rookie for a 12-yard score in the third. Cowboys 38, Commanders 10. Dak Prescott and Dallas did what it set out to do against the rival Commanders, unlike a year ago, by earning the NFC East title and the number two seed in the conference with a victory at Washington. Bills 21, Dolphins 14. Josh Allen threw a go-ahead touchdown pass to Dawson Knox midway through the fourth quarter, and Buffalo rallied past host Miami to win its fourth straight AFC East title. Allen made things difficult for the Bills with three turnovers in Dolphins territory, but he came through at the end to help Buffalo earn the conference's number two seed. Giants 27, Eagles 10. Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, and a host of injured, ineffective Eagles can only hope they've bottomed a 1-5 finish headed into the postseason that could spark an offseason of upheaval with a loss at New York. Seahawks 21, Cardinals 20. Geno Smith threw two touchdown passes and visiting Seattle rallied for a victory over Arizona, but the Seahawks still missed the playoffs after Green Bay beat Chicago. Saints 48, Falcons 17. Derek Carr passed for four touchdowns to lift host New Orleans over Atlanta, but both teams missed out on a chance to win the division when Tampa Bay beat Carolina. 
Carr passed for 264 yards. Lions 30, Vikings 20. Jared Goff was 23 of 32 for 320 yards, including a 70-yard touchdown pass to Amon Ra St. Brown in the fourth quarter, and host Detroit matched the 1991 team's win total and will host a playoff game for the first time since the 1993 season. Rams 21, 49ers 20. Carson Wentz threw two touchdown passes and ran for a score to lead Los Angeles at San Francisco in a game filled with backups. Bengals 31, Browns 14. Jake Browning threw three touchdown passes. Joe Mixon rushed for a season-high 111 yards and a score, and host Cincinnati got an easy victory over Cleveland, team resting most of its starters. Jets 17, Patriots 3. Brees Hall rushed for 178 yards and a late touchdown as New York snapped a 15-game losing streak against the Patriots with a road victory in what may have been Bill Belichick's final game as New England's coach. Raiders 27, Broncos 14. Aiden O'Connell passed for 244 yards and two touchdowns. Zamir White rushed for 112 yards and Las Vegas continued its dominance over Denver. Chiefs 13, Chargers 12. Mike Edwards returned to fumble 97 yards for a touchdown. Harrison Butker made a 41-yard field goal with 49 seconds remaining, and AFC West champion Kansas City won at Los Angeles while resting most of its starters. And here's some short stories from around the league. Laporta's knee injury, not good news for Lions. Lions rookie tight end Sam Laporta limped off the field after appearing to hurt his left knee against Minnesota on Sunday and was later taken toward the locker room on a cart. It's not as bad as it looked, but it's not good news, Lions coach Dan Campbell said after his team closed the regular season with a 30-20 win over the Minnesota Vikings. We'll know more Monday. I know it looked awful. The Lions secured the number three seed in the NFC by winning a division title for the first time in three decades. They needed Dallas to lose later Sunday at Washington to move into the number two spot, but the Cowboys didn't cooperate, breezing past the last place Commanders 38-10. Detroit will host the Los Angeles Rams and former Lions quarterback Matthew Stafford in the wildcard round of the playoffs next weekend. You're either all in or all out, Campbell said. Laporta's left leg was bent in an awkward way after he caught a pass and was tackled late in the first half. Laporta had 86 catches, an NFL record by a rookie tight end. Kelsey inactive for Chiefs. Travis Kelsey was inactive for the Kansas City Chiefs season finale against the Los Angeles Chargers, ending the star tight end's chance to reach the 1,000-yard mark for the eighth straight season. Kelsey needed 16 yards to hit the milestone, which would have been the fourth longest streak in NFL history regardless of position, but with the Chiefs locked into the third seed in the AFC playoffs, the team decided to play it safe. Saints run it up. Reserve quarterback Jameis Winston and New Orleans offense capped off a convincing victory with an aggressive play call that defied the orders of their own coaches and upset the rival Falcons. Leading 41-17 with a minute and 10 seconds left, the Saints lined up in victory formation, indicating Winston intended to take a knee to run out the clock. But surprisingly, Winston handed 
off to Jamal Williams for a one-yard touchdown that made the final score 48-17. to As the game ended, Saints coach Dennis Allen apologized on the field to Falcons coach Arthur Smith, who did not appear to accept the apology. From the Eagles, Philadelphia star-wide receiver A.J. Brown was knocked out of Sunday's game against the New York Giants, joining a growing list of injury concerns that also includes quarterback Jalen Hurts, who, along with other key starters, was pulled midway through the game. From the Rams, receiver Puka Nakua set the NFL rookie record for catches and yards receiving, breaking Bill Groman's record of 1,473 yards that had stood since 1960. From the Vikings, receiver Justin Jefferson joined Wes Chandler and Jim Benton as the only players in league history to have 1,000 yards receiving in 10 or fewer games. And from the Steelers, Pittsburgh will head to the playoffs without star outside linebacker T.J. Watt. The perennial All-Pro left Saturday's victory over Baltimore with a knee injury that is expected to sideline him. In NBA news, Irving hits three-pointers, leads Mavericks past Timberwolves. Kyrie Irving made the tying and go-ahead three-pointers, finishing with 35 points to lead the Dallas Mavericks to a 115-108 victory over the Minnesota Timberwolves on Sunday night. Irving shot 14-27, including 6-8 of from the three-point arc. Luka Doncic added 34 points on 12-16 of shooting, including 5-12 of from the three-point arc. Irving's three from the top of the arc tied it at 106 with 2.59 remaining. He then stole the ball from Rudy Gobert and made another three from the right corner with 2.05 to play. Derek Jones Sr. sealed the Mavericks' victory with a driving dunk with 24 seconds left in the game. Anthony Edwards led all scorers with 36 points on 14-27 shooting for the Timberwolves. Minnesota had won the first two meetings this season. Cavaliers 117, Spurs 115. Jared Allen had 29 points and 16 rebounds. Karis Levert scored 23 off the bench. And Cleveland beat visiting San Antonio, which got 24 points, 10 rebounds, and 5 block shots from rookie Victor Webbenyama. Lakers 106, Clippers 103. LeBron James scored 25 points, Anthony Davis had 22, and the host Lakers held on in Los Angeles after the Clippers took out Kawhi Leonard due to a minutes restriction. Trailblazers 134, Nets 127 in overtime. Anthony Simons had 38 points and 11 assists. Malcolm Brogdon scored 8 points during a nearly flawless overtime, and Portland beat host New York. Magic 117, Hawks 110 in overtime. Paulo Banchero scored 8 of his 35 points in overtime, and Orlando beat visiting Atlanta. Caleb Houston added a career-high 25 points in his first start of the season. Pelicans 133, Kings 100. C.J. McCollum scored 30 points, making 7 threes, and New Orleans led by as much as 50 points in a rout of Sacramento. The Pelicans have won six straight road games. Nuggets 131, Pistons 114. Jamal Murray scored 37 points. Nikola Jokic had 16 assists, and Denver beat visiting Detroit, which lost Cade Cunningham to a left knee strain in the second quarter. Grizzlies 121, Suns 115. 
Jaron Jackson Jr. had 28 points and 10 rebounds, and Memphis, playing without Ja Morant, overcame an 11-point deficit in the fourth quarter to defeat host Phoenix. And Raptors 133, Warriors 118. R.J. Barrett scored 37 points in his fourth game since being traded to his hometown, and Toronto beat Golden State, which got only nine points from Steph Curry. In news from around the NBA, Knicks wave veteran man Gibson. The New York Knicks waved Todd Gibson on Sunday, three weeks after bringing back the 38-year-old veteran big man. The New York New York turned to Gibson, a favorite of coach Tom Thibodeau, on December the 15th, shortly after starting center Mitchell Robinson was lost to a stress fracture in his left ankle. He played in 10 games off the bench, but hadn't appeared in the last three with the Knicks, using Precious Achiwa as their backup big man after acquiring him from Toronto in the deal that brought OG and Obi to New York. Taj stepped up in a big way to help her team this season and has had a measurable impact on our organization both on and off the court throughout his time with the Knicks, team president Leon Rose said in a statement. Warriors Chris Paul will miss four to six weeks. Golden State's Chris Paul will have surgery next week to repair a fracture in his left hand and is expected to be out four to six weeks after the operation, according to multiple reports. Paul, aged 38, fractured his left hand in a collision with Detroit's Jaden Ivey during Friday's game against the Pistons. Paul has now had 11 hand injuries in his 19-year career, five to his non-shooting hand and six to his right. The timeline has Paul returning sometime around February 8th trade deadline. It's possible Paul played his last game as a warrior on Friday as his expiring contract makes him an appealing asset. Paul is earning $38.8 million this year, and his $30 million next year is non-guaranteed. On to the NHL. Carlson scores late. Caps top Kings. John Carlson scored the game winner with 53 seconds left in regulation, and the Washington Capitals defeated the Los Angeles Kings 4-3 on Sunday. The Capitals' fourth line made all the difference in the win. Nicholas Aubie Kubel had a goal and two assists. Nick Dowd had a goal and an assist, and Beck Malenstein added the assist. Dylan Strom also scored for Washington, which ended a two-game slide. The fourth line was unbelievable all game, so credit to them. They got the ice time tonight, and they deserved it. Not only just did they get the goals, but they got the chances, too, Strom said. They were great defensively and not enough good things to say about them. They're a really good line and hard to play against. Kevin Fiala scored twice, and Adrian Kempe also had a goal for the Kings, who have lost five in a row. Blackhawks 4, Flames 3, Colin Blackwell had two goals and an assist, and Chicago beat visiting Calgary to win its first game since Connor Bedard was sidelined by a broken jaw. Nikita Zaitsev added a goal and an assist for the last-place Blackhawks, who had dropped five in a row and seven of eight. Nazim Kadri had two goals for the Flames, who closed out a 2-2-0 road trip. With nine players on injured reserve, including eight forwards, Chicago went with seven defensemen against Calgary. There has been no word on how long Bedard will be out. 
Still just evaluating how he's doing and settling down, Coach Luke Richardson said after Sunday's win. We know there's a jaw fracture, but it's swollen, so I think the doctors are just giving it a few days to see how it settles. Jets 6, Coyotes 2. Mark Scheifel scored two goals. Connor Hellebrook stopped 15 shots, and Winnipeg extended its point streak to 12 games with a win at Arizona. The Jets have allowed three goals or less in a franchise record 29 games. Red Wings 3, Ducks 2. Michael Rasmussen scored with 1 minute 8 seconds remaining to lift Detroit over Anaheim after the Ducks' Trevor Zegris tied it early in the third period. Alex Lyon made 28 saves to earn the victory. In news from around the NHL, Devils' Singthaler breaks foot in game. According to coach Lindy Ruff, New Jersey's Jonas Siegenthaler suffered a broken foot during the Devils' 6-4 loss to the Vancouver Canucks on Saturday. The 26-year-old Swiss defenseman suffered the injury just three minutes into the second period after blocking a shot. He tried to play the rest of his shift, but then needed help off the ice from a trainer and fellow European teammate Eric Haula. He finished the night with two blocked shots and ten total shifts. The former second-round pick has eight points, one goal, and seven assists in 38 games in a disappointing seventh NHL season. The Devils, who are dealing with terrible injury luck of late, were without Jack Hughes, Timo Meyer, Andre Pallet, Dougie Hamilton, and Thomas Nosek on Saturday as well. They will need a call to call up a defenseman or make a trade to fill Siegenthaler's absence. Blackhawks claim Sanford off waivers. Zach Sanford joins his seventh team since 2016 after being claimed off waivers by Chicago Blackhawks on Sunday. Chicago made several moves in addition to claiming Sanford in the aftermath of a star rookie, Connor Bedard, suffering a broken jaw during Friday's game. The 29-year-old Sanford has 49 goals and 51 assists in 316 regular season NHL games split between Washington, St. Louis, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Nashville, and Arizona. He had two assists in 11 games for the Coyotes this season. And of course, if you're a sports fan, you're fully aware that tonight is the national championship game between Michigan and Washington. And this article is entitled, How They Match Up, Michigan's Stingy Pass D Faces Washington QB Phoenix Jr. It's written by Ralph Russo of the Associated Press. The college football playoff national championship game between number one Michigan and number two Washington is a contrast in styles and a matchup of strength versus strength when Michael Phoenix Jr. faces the Wolverines defense. You get a schematic, professional-style matchup, and to me, you get the Baltimore Ravens versus the Kansas City Chiefs, said Fox analyst Brock Huard, who has called games for both teams this season. The Huskies in purple masquerade as the Chiefs, and the guys in blue masquerade as the Baltimore Ravens. Michigan is a a four-and-a-half-point favorite over Washington, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. Getting pressure on Phoenix is difficult, Washington's offensive line won the Joe Moore Award as the best group in the country and tackles Troy Fontenot and Roger Rosengarten proved excellent edge protection. 
when teams do pressure Phoenix, he is often unfazed. In the Sugar Bowl, Texas didn't sack him once in 38 pass attempts, and while it might have looked like the Longhorns got almost no push, they actually registered 16 pressures, according to Pro Football Focus. When pressured, Phoenix was incredible, completing 60% of his passes at 10 yards per attempt. Texas got most of its pressure from the interior with powerful tackles to Vondre Sweat and Byron Murphy II. Michigan is deeper up front and better off the edges. Defensive coordinator Jesse Minter gave Alabama fits in the Rolls Bowl by making it difficult to identify what was coming from where. Minter succeeded Mike McDonald, who left Michigan and coached Jim Harbaugh to work for Ravens coach John Harbaugh. Washington's veteran offensive line has allowed only 11 sacks for a team that throws it as much as any in the country, and while the Huskies' deep passing game can be spectacular, Phoenix and company are good all over the field. If there is a play to be made, the Huskies usually make it. Phoenix targeted receivers Rome Odunzi, Jalen Polk, Jalen McMillan, and Jeremy Bernard 20 times against Texas and completed 19 passes for 411 yards. Michigan's secondary plays an aggressive style, led by star cornerback Will Johnson and versatile nickelback Mike Saintstrill. The Wolverines don't concede anything. They want to force opponents to make difficult completions. No team is better at making the difficult look easy than Washington. Here's the wild card. Michigan has the third best pass defense in the country by opponent efficiency rating and has allowed seven touchdown passes, fewest in the nation. But the Wolverines have faced only two offenses ranked in the top 20 in pass efficiency. Michigan is elite defensively, but they've gotten to feast on horrific, horrific offenses in the Big Ten, Huard said. So from a stress test, Michigan has not seen anything like the likes of Washington's offense. Meanwhile, Washington has faced only one top 30 pass defense, Oregon, twice. Phoenix completed 64% for 8.2 yards per attempt with five touchdowns and two interceptions. Strength versus weakness. Michigan runs the ball a lot and efficiently and can do it in critical situations. Washington's run defense isn't good, but Phoenix and the offense are so effective that opponents often can't or don't stick with it. Texas's running backs averaged 6 point yards per carry in the Sugar Bowl against Washington, but had only 18 carries as the Longhorns seemed to get impatient early and then were scrambling to come from behind late. Michigan is committed to run the ball with Blake Corum, who leads the nation with 26 touchdowns. Even in a game they trailed for much of the second half against Alabama, the Wolverines had 30 runs and J.J. McCarthy threw 27 passes. Washington's defense, outside of edge rusher Braylon Trice, who had two sacks in a ferocious performance against Texas, doesn't have much high-end NFL-type talent. The Huskies do have a knack for getting big stops late in games, which helps explains how they have won each of their last 10 games by 10 points or fewer. Michigan and Washington have thrived off dictating the way their games are played. Michigan makes its opponents try to outgrind them. Washington makes its opponents try to keep pace. 
I really don't expect there to be many wasted possessions, Fleming said, and we might get this really weird mismatch with these long, plotting, rushing drives and scoring and Washington coming out and scoring in four or five plays. Russo's prediction, Michigan 34, Washington 26. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.